to how we talk. Um, but what I'd really like you to do is to uh, just, I want to, to take that last little bit um, of the text, read it, and then I want you to watch a video. It says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. I'd like you to watch this little video before we start. Hey, Craig. Uh, hey, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, answer a few questions related to uh, my involvement and my experience uh, at Solidarity, and even more specifically the, in the location of the Garnett neighborhood, which uh, from, from here at my office where I'm sitting is uh, 0.7 miles from here, so really close to us. Um, and so the story really began as uh, I was a college student at Hope International University, and I was volunteering like once a week at Solidarity. So there was an elementary after school program and I would uh, jump on my, on my bike. I would leave my, my college apartment with my roommates uh, and I would bike over to the Garnett neighborhood uh, and be involved in some of the programs in the neighborhood that were there. Uh, the opportunity came for Solidarity uh, to, to purchase, or not to purchase, excuse me, but to, to rent an apartment in the neighborhood. And there was just this idea of, hey, uh, what would it look like to have um, folks who are committed to living in the neighborhood uh, and committed to continuing some of the, the relational and, and just different connections that Solidarity was beginning to establish in the neighborhood, uh, but really just doing that on just this, you know, in-person, all-the-time physical level. And so um, the, our executive director asked myself as well as my brother, uh, and we said yes. And so it was while I was a college student, and at that time I saw it as an opportunity to take a risk that before this I wasn't I wasn't planning on taking and to do something just out of the ordinary for myself in the life stage um, that I was in. And so the reason um, I've continued to stay, uh, one of the things that that you had referenced was, you know, now you are are now married uh, and, and have kids. And one of the, the factors that that has kept me in the neighborhood has been just the over and over repetitive experiences of just genuine uh, care and community and love that I received from uh, my neighbors and friends in Garnett. And uh, as, our, as my life uh, stage continued, as I did, um, you know, propose to my girlfriend and become engaged and then uh, become married, the reality is, is that so much of our relationship was centered and built around the location of the Garnett neighborhood. Um, I was I was living in the neighborhood with my brother in one house, and the the truth is that my wife um, also had made that decision a little bit after to live in the neighborhood, and there was a, a girl's house, um, and so she was right there alongside of me as as we were present uh, in the neighborhood as a part a part of solidarity um, at that location. Um, and one of the things I've thought about this a lot. Um, one of the the most transformational decisions that I ever made in my life was the decision as a college student to move into the neighborhood. Um, and, and one of the, or a few of the things 
that I've really learned and had the the privilege, you know, of being taught by my neighborhood um, are these pretty life life changing transformational kind of lessons and moments. And so um, the first thing that 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 the neighborhood has really taught me. Um, was what I value in life as an adult. If you think of that that time as I was younger, as like my trajectory point in a certain way, uh, the risk that I took and the risk of moving into the neighborhood changed that trajectory in a way that I believe is is closer to what God had for me and closer to God's heart for um, those on the margins and closer to to what Jesus exemplified in his life as he was here on earth. And really that that trajectory changed to to value this this sense and this aspect of um, just being in genuine relationship and in care and in community. Uh, if I would have not moved into the neighborhood, the trajectory I was on was a little bit more normal of of a you know twenty twenty something year old college student who was who was about to graduate. Um, my life would have looked completely different, I believe, if if I if I didn't have the gift of my friends and my neighbors in the Garnett community. Really this, and then the second thing that the neighborhood has taught me uh, is really what it looks like to, to live out this mission of, of serving, um, to serve others or to be on mission as Christ calls us to in the world. As I was a, um, an outsider coming into the neighborhood to quote unquote serve you know, the kids at the time in the neighborhood, um, I had this perspective of what the neighborhood was like um, I had this perspective of what, you know, the kids that I knew were experiencing. I had this perspective of what I thought the neighborhood needed uh, at that time. And so I had all these preconceived ideas of, of what service, um, what mission, what all these things were. And I realized really quickly after I moved into the neighborhood and allowed myself to, to listen and to be taught um, by my neighbors that all those preconceived ideas were pretty far off. Um, the, the experiences were, were not like what I thought. The, the things that I thought my, my neighbors needed, uh, those things shifted as I actually sat and, and lived life with neighbors on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, it was this sense of uh, me being an outsider coming in, uh, experiencing something different because life just happened as I walked down the street to the store. Um, experiences and, and learning opportunities happened as I, uh, you know, walked to the laundry room in the back of the the, the apartment. Right? Um, there was these interactions where where my understanding of of God's heart for specific places and the way that we enter into those were completely uh, changed and formed. Uh, and then one of the other things that uh, I I learned and, and was graciously taught by my neighbors was really this gift of what does it actually tangibly look like to support and care for those who are in your like physical immediate vicinity. Um, if you go if you go three streets away from where I live, the neighborhood is completely different. And so there's this uniqueness of the way that our our neighborhood supports and cares for each other. Um, I I had this idea that um, early on that I was um, there to serve. I mentioned that before. I was. I was a college student coming to the to the neighborhood to provide something, uh, and it was this skewed perspective of of what I thought my purpose was. Uh, and one of the stories that ha really shaped my understanding of uh, no, 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 you don't start with service to, but you start with relationship with. Um, you start with this base level of genuine relationship, and then other things uh, fall into place after that. 
and and whenever I was in in that season of life, um, I wasn't married, I didn't live close to my parents, and I was uh, working with kids in the neighborhood pretty frequently. And uh, without anybody asking, or without this this idea being, you know formulated. Uh, there was five moms that got together and said, hey, here's two guys that, uh, for me and my brother, two guys that are helping in the neighborhood. Uh, we see that they, they are, you know, not eating very well. And they, they decided on their own to every single day, they just cooked a little bit of extra food for lunch. And so uh, whenever we would show up, there would be a hot meal waiting for us. And for years, uh, these five moms provided this support and met this immediate need uh, for myself and my brother in that season of life where we really needed that. And, and it just totally shifted my understanding of what God had for me with that decision of moving in the neighborhood because uh, it almost felt backwards in feeling like, okay, well, I'm here to serve. But the truth is uh, you, you're providing so much to me in this time of need. You're showing me really what God's heart for for loving those around you well looks like, uh, and and just that understanding of the gift of my my neighbors and the in genuine relationship the the amount of ways that uh, the the giving and the service goes back and forth has just continued to grow um, over the years that we've been there. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of been my experience in moving into the neighborhood and some of the things that I've learned. And I'm super grateful and continuously thankful for the the ways that our church is a part of that. And so, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to share. Uh, blessings to everybody. Matt, they're celebrating their anniversary this weekend up in San Nazareth. So um, uh, he couldn't be with us. I begged him, but he said no. And uh, so he did this for us, which I appreciate. Uh, when Eugene Peterson translates John uh, 1.14, he says this. He says, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And that's why I wanted uh, Matt to talk about it. One of the, uh, many of us moved into our neighborhood so long ago, we forgot what it was like. And, uh, and our neighborhoods have turned over. Um, and a lot of the things that we had in common when we came to this church might have been when we were younger and starting families and we had common experiences with our neighbors and that maybe not be the case as much anymore. But I love that story that Matt tells about these five women. They looked at these two college kids that basically, two college boys, and you know what they're like. They eat a lot and they burn a lot of calories. Matt still must burn a lot of calories. I don't, he doesn't show any signs of putting them on. And, uh, and so... Uh, you know, I just laugh at that story. What could be a better gift to a young college male um, except food? And they got it. And um, in, a, in a moment where, where you think you're the one bringing Jesus, Jesus gets brought to them. And serving creates kind of a, a mutuality, I think, if we're paying attention. And... Uh, he started off thinking he was going to change the neighborhood. And the real change took place in him. And he'll tell you that more than what he just said. He'll talk about all of it. It's a paradox, isn't it? A paradox is, the, is, the, um, is to hold together two things which appear contrary to one another that seem mutually exclusive 
against expectation. So a paradox, this idea that, that there's, you can hold these two things together. I mean, our text says it perfectly, and it, and it started off perfectly. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You had this grand announcement of, of the Word, this cosmic force presence that we're going to learn is, is Jesus. But we hear that at the beginning, this eternal presence in the Word of God. And then it goes, and then there was a man named uh, John, this finite person. And then eventually we're going to get to our text this morning, and the Word became like John, in a sense. The Word became flesh. That's the ultimate of paradoxes. Think about it. The omniscient, all-knowing God coming into our world and learning. Jesus didn't come born with language and with the ability to, to participate and know the rules of the game and all that stuff. Jesus came into the world and had to learn the world. He had to learn to speak, to love, to care. We, we forget about that because the Bible just... For the time he's, we get that one little story, right? When he's 12, you know, and he astounds everybody with his knowledge. Well, we've met people like that. We don't particularly like them. They're kind of show-offs. But, but we've, we've met them and there's that sense. But, but Jesus actually still had to learn, didn't he? We don't hear another word about him until he's in his 30s. And so a lot goes on. This omniscient, all-knowing God is lear a learning God in human form. The omnipotent God, this all-powerful God, comes as a vulnerable baby. I mean, there's nothing that is presented to our senses that's more vulnerable than a baby that has to be taken care of and provided for every part of who they are. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was at the... Uh, um, uh, I was at Lowe's yesterday, and I was walking out. There's this, this couple, and, and obvious Marine from the Marine base, uh, and you can only tell because of his haircut um, and the stuff he wore. But um, he's there, and he's there with his wife, and they were sitting outside. They'd taken their masks off and came outside, and, and I saw these two little burnt, round, bald heads. And it was like, oh, <laughs> that looks like a lot of work. Um, two little babies, uh, these twins, and, and, uh, but vulnerable. And she had them both just right there. This omnipresent God, this God that can be everywhere all the time and where time doesn't matter. So God sees us here, but God sees us as we will be, and God sees everything that's been. And holds that all before God's presence but chooses to come into finite time not really knowing what the next day is going to be and choosing to live in that constraint of time. It's the greatest of paradoxes. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We immediately jump to the end. I mean, we, we hear that, and then we jump to the end of it, to rescue us, to save the neighborhood. I mean, that's, 
that's actually how, how Matt started, right? I'm, I'm going to rescue. I'm going to move in. I'm going to save. I'm going I'm to serve. I'm going to make sure they have what they need. And I know what they need. And then he gets to the neighborhood and goes, I don't get it. But that isn't where the story starts with Jesus. And it's not how we work through it. It starts by being subject to the neighborhood. To learn of and to listen to people. In a sense, you're at the mercy of the neighborhood to receive welcome. And we heard that earlier in our text, didn't we? That Jesus has said to all who, um, that, that he came to his own, his own received him not. He came, he moved in. But even his own people mostly just turned away. but to all who received him. So there were some who welcomed him in. Why would God take on human flesh with all its ignoble qualities, all its ailments, its contradictions, its vulnerabilities, its failures, its anger, its fears? Why would God take that on? I mean, it doesn't seem necessary. God's God. God can do anything God wants. Right? I mean, it's the definition of God. All-powerful, all-knowing, um, ever-present. When we think of a God, we think of God that, that just can do whatever they can make up their mind to do. But God takes on humanity. It's God's way. It's how God chooses to show us God's own character. It's how God shows love. God wants, you see, to take us in. God wants to take us in to himself, to gather us up. But he also wants to take us in in another way. There's a couple of different ways that we take things in. First, it's like taking in a sunset. Yeah, you go out and, and this time of year, folks, if you can't, if you don't live on a hill, get up to a hill sometime or get to the beach or get somewhere and watch the winter sunsets because they are spectacular without a doubt. That The colors uh, with the way the sun works and all the atmosphere and everything else, the oranges and the pinks and, and everything about it are just brilliant. And some, some evenings, once the sun's gone down, there's that moment if you wait a few minutes and you, you go back and the sun's already set and then the sky explodes in color and it's just worth seeing right and to take it all in and you take your time and you absorb it and you you let it have its moment and there's that way of taking something in just letting just sitting with it right there's a second way. It's to gather in, to include people. So if I, want to, if I take in someone, if I take in someone off the street and take them into my home, I take them in so they can be warm. You know, you, you use that language when people come to visit you. Well, well, come on in, get out of the rain or get out of the cold. In Southern California, we don't have to use that too often, but this night we do. And it's like, because it, it was cold last night, it's going to be cold again tonight. Come on in. Don't stand out there. Get in the house. Why? Because it's cold. I'm going to take you in. 
Take you into my family. Take you into my presence. Take you in to me. God takes on humanity to take in humanity. Does that make sense to you? It's a paradox. I don't get it, actually. But I, I, I think that's what's happening. God takes on human form to take in human beings. And it starts by letting go of our position and privilege. I don't know a better example than Jesus. Philippians 2 says this, Let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, and this is my translation of it, as something to be clutched or grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus let go of his position and privilege to take us on so he could take us in. This is the mission of God. The missio dei that you and I are being called to participate in. The missio dei, the mission of God, is the mission that Jesus undertakes. He gets down inside our skin so he can hear about us, so he can listen to us, so he can know what it means to be human and he can take in all of humanity and redeem it every last little cell of our bodies and every last thought, every last bit of energy that flows through us, Jesus has experienced and he can take it in to himself and bring new life. But even for him, it starts with letting go. He can only get inside by letting go of all the things that keeps him from being that. One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia comes towards the end. It's in the book, the book called The Last Battle. It's the seventh one. It's worth reading for several things. You get a little bit of Lewis's understanding of the end of the world and what does it mean. You get a little bit of his understanding of judgment and what that might look like. And uh, you get some, some great illustrations of, of just what does it look like for um, us to participate in the kingdom. And it's a wonderful story. And you all know that the, the Christ figure in the books is Aslan. It's the Persian name for lion. And Aslan is the great lion um, for the emperor across the sea. And he's the redeeming presence in the stories. And the stories are about children from England during World War II times that get from where they are into Narnia, this parallel world existence to uh, England at the time. And there's a moment at which the, there's been a big battle. And uh, the, the, uh, 
Uh, there's been a stable door put in, and, and the world of Narnia is closing out. It's ending. It's come to the end of its life. And there's this stable door, this large door put out in the middle of a field, and you're invited to go through it. And on the other side of that door is forever. It's amazing how Lewis talks about it. And, and on the other side of that door, all kinds of people get into it, and they start wandering. And one of the things that Lewis describes about it, he says that it's, it's a lot like the Narnia they left behind, only more real, more solid, more of whatever it was that was on this side of the stable door. And there's a group of dwarves that get through, but when they were on the other side of the stable door, they were in a, a barn, a dark barn, and closed up in it. And they were sitting in a circle, and it was dark, and they couldn't see anything. And now they're in the middle of a field in bright sunlight, gorgeous surroundings, and they're still huddled in a little circle, and as though they're in the dark, and they can't see anything around them. And their mantra is, the dwarves are for the dwarfs. We're not being taken in again by anybody. We're going to stick together. And they're stuck together in this little circle with the bright brilliance of heaven all around them. And they can't see it. And Lucy, one of the children, comes to Aslan and says, can you do anything about it? And Aslan shows them some things. So he goes over and whispers to them. And they interpret it as roaring. And they, they huddle closer together. And they're afraid of the sounds. And that, that people are coming to get them. And they stay encircled. And time and again, they, they, you know, Aslan tries to address them and help them. And they just get more and more frightened. And more and more entrenched in their imprisonment. And then Aslan says this. They are so afraid of being taken in, they can't be taken out. That is just so profound. That is so profound because it's the description of the problem we have with letting go of our lives to be taken in by God. We are so afraid of being taken in this might not be real. And so afraid of having to let go of things we've relied on for so long that we can't let go. We're so afraid of being taken in again that we can't be taken out so we can really be taken in. The only way to be taken in to the life of Jesus is for us to let go of the life we cling to. We keep holding on to our positions, our viewpoints, our maps, how we got to where we are. All the little tricks we learned, how to maneuver and navigate the world. All the ways that, that set up our accomplishments. I have a friend that, that um, there was a book out a few years ago called... Um, uh, uh, from success to significance. 
And my friend is a fundraiser, John Moore, and he uh, does fund development for our denomination for new church work. And John said, what people who have been uh, CEOs of companies don't need to move from success to significant. We don't need them to do ministry the same way they did business. Because all they'll do is do what they did in business or in, in politics or whatever else they did. All they'll do is apply the same principles they were using in business to the church. And that's not what the church is about. So John, what is it? People need to move from significance in their lives to sacrifice. Skip from success to significance and go from success to sacrifice. What does that mean? To letting go. Not just of money, though that helps. But letting go of the way you succeeded in the world. Because the rules for the kingdom are different and they don't make sense. It's a new kingdom coming. It's a new way of being. And Jesus has moved into the neighborhood to learn everything about what it means to be human so he can take us in. But for us to participate, we have to be taken out. Because we can't be taken out without relinquishing control. We'll never be in. Matt's story is helpful at this point, isn't it? You know what Matt had to let go of? A savior complex. Pastors have it worse. We kind of, we major in that. And, uh, and parents sometimes major in that. And um, grandparents uh, have been beaten down so much they don't major in that anymore. Um, but, but, uh, but along the way, I think we, we, uh, we have that. We can, we can fix this. We can save that. I grew up in an alcoholic family. If you want to uh, know what happens to people in those households, it's this belief that we can fix it. That it was a rough lesson to learn. I can't fix a thing. I can't repair it. He had to let go of it so he could be taken into the neighborhood and experience the richness of the kindness of God through the people there. Our text says, we behold the glory of God in Jesus. But it remains at arm's length until we surrender. The neighborhood that we want, that we live in. Matt lives in Garnet neighborhood. You all live in different neighborhoods. It remains at arm's length until we let go of our need to control and to save. I'll give you one more story. I, um, when I first started at a church in Thousand Oaks, <laughs> I learned that our, our, uh, 
Um, whole staff, including me, had plans to be gone on uh, 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 Valentine's Day weekend. I mean, literally, I mean, they had plane flights to go places. and Everybody was going to be gone, and I had a commitment to a conference that I had to be at because I was part of the leadership of it. And, uh, and so uh, we just basically told everybody, we'll have something for you when you come to worship, but the rest of you, why don't you take a day off from Sunday and learn about your community? And we gave them an exercise to go out into the community. And a number of people did it, about 60 or 70 people from the congregation actually took the Sunday off and did this exercise of listening to the community. And one of the guys um, was, they were going to go later in the day, so they slept in, and they um, hung around the house, and he walked out of his neighborhood to get his newspaper. And it was kind of late in the morning, it was about nine or something, and his neighbor neighbor goes, what are you doing here? And he goes, I just, you know, just get my paper and stuff. He goes, no, 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 usually you're gone by now, usually you abandon the neighborhood, and go to church. Why are you here? It's like, well, what do you mean? No, you abandoned the neighborhood. We all stood around, and by this time of day, we're getting ready to have a cup of coffee in our driveways, and we talk to each other, and we do all that. So what's so different today? And my friend walked away from it, thinking, boy, what's the message we give to our neighbors? That we don't actually know them And we don't actually participate with them. It's an irony, isn't it? But think about it. We're told that we can't have life unless we lose it. That we will never be taken into the community um, unless we give ourselves up to the community. It's almost as great a paradox as the incarnation itself of God becoming human. Whoever would lose their life for my sake and the gospel will find it. So I guess the best way I could say at the end of a sermon is, y'all get lost. I really mean it. Lose yourselves. So you can be taken in by the one who made us. Pray with me. God, sometimes I just need to be right. And I need to be taken out of that. It's the only way to be taken in by others is not to be the person with the position that's justified and justifiable. Sometimes I need to be taken out of my perspective and told, you know that word you used? Gosh, you know what it means? I wouldn't use it again. God, take me out. Help me to lose my life so I can be taken in by you. In Jesus' name, amen.